From Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada, you are listening to The Global Frequencies, where every voice matters. This program is presented by ANC, Association for New Canadians. Welcome to Global Frequencies. I'm Renata Lang with ANC's Diversity and Public Education team. We have a special episode coming your way today. It's a recap of ANC's Diversity Summit. The Diversity Summit is a special event held to celebrate diversity in the province and shed light on the importance of immigration to NL's economic and cultural landscapes. This year, due to COVID-19, the Diversity Summit was held on June 25th as a virtual event. The theme was Promoting Multiculturalism and Anti-Racism in Business and Communities in Newfoundland and Labrador. We will now bring you to the summit's second guest speaker, Carrie Majid. She is the Executive Director and Chief Executive Officer of the NL Human Rights Commission. Have a listen. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to you today about the Human Rights Commission law around discrimination and harassment, and the work required to become truly anti-racist. First, I'll tell you something briefly about me. My name is Carrie Majid. I'm originally from Ontario. My dad is from Guyana, and my mom's family is Canadian. Ancestors are Scottish, English, and Irish. My husband and I, and he's from Colombia, moved to Newfoundland and Labrador in 2001 for his job. We've made it our home. Our children are born and raised Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. I'm a lawyer and I've worked at the commission for about 10 years. I will refer to stories throughout my talk from my own personal experiences or from complaints we've seen at the commission, other commissions across the country, or from the news. But I want to acknowledge the privilege with which I speak. I've been involved with social justice movements since I was a teenager didn't come to understand the privilege I have as an upper middle class, white brown Canadian lawyer. I was in law school over 20 years ago. It's a hard lesson to learn, but it has struck, stuck with me since that time. What is privilege? Not about labeling people as bad or racist. Simply need to acknowledge that it exists, that some groups of people benefit or don't have the same opportunities as of the negative stereotypes associated with the color of their skin. How often do you even think about your own privilege? How easily can you navigate through security at an airport? I know my Colombian husband does. He used to get stopped all the time uh, going through um, customs, but he doesn't as much now as he carries a Canadian passport. Do you worry about getting stopped by the police in St. John's? or elsewhere in the province, or followed in a store because somebody might think that you're shoplifting. I know, I know indigenous people do here. If you don't see it, you've probably got privilege. Privilege is invisible for those that hold it. I read an article recently that said black people in the United States think about race all the time, because they have to navigate their world in their own skin, whereas white people, or even people like me, have the luxury of never or very rarely thinking about it. Newfoundland and Labrador Human Rights Act protects people against discrimination and harassment based on certain personal characteristics, of prohibited grounds, 
race, ethnicity, national, ethnic origin. And it protects you in certain protected areas only. Going to work, accessing public services, going to a store or restaurant, taking a cab, or even renting an apartment. It does not protect people against racial slurs while they're out on the street. If that rises to the level of a hate crime, you could become involved. Human Rights Commission administers the act by investigating and resolving human rights complaints, educating the public about human rights matters. A small office located on Elizabeth Avenue in St. John's serve the whole province. You can learn more about what we do at thinkhumanrights.ca. Follow us on Twitter at NLHumanRights. On our website, you can fill out an online application form or send an email to our intake officer on a file of human rights complaint. Or at least you can speak to someone who go over your options if you've been discriminated or harassed in Salvador. One last thing about our office. I've consistently asked for more funding to let us focus on the proactive education piece. This is most important. However, it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. But I'm hoping that the current awareness focus on anti-racism here and around the world um, might be able to strengthen that aspect of our work. For the time being, we do what we can partner with as many community groups as possible. We know that there is no legitimate basis for classifying people by race. I suppose it might be normal in the world, the us versus them dynamic, but how we choose to classify people is socially constructed. Race is a social construct that has one social function, according to Toni Morrison. That is racism. What is racism then? Individual belief that the races are unequal and that racial differences are real. These beliefs justify treating people differently. In Canadian law, we use the term discrimination, and it is defined as a distinction, whether intentional or not, which is related to certain personal characteristics. And it must impose a burden, disadvantage, or limit access to opportunities. We see many different types of complaints with respect to discrimination. Unfortunately, we see many overt cases of discrimination, whether it's online, social media, harassment. Um, we had a case a number of years ago where three Inu men went into a hotel up in Labrador and were denied service and basically told to leave. Um, very derogatory terms hurled at them. I've heard stories of people who have tried to rent housing and as soon as they show up they're told that the uh, apartment is now rented. I've heard of stories and we've had complaints of people being called the n-word at work. This happens here. We also hear stories of microaggressions, everyday racism, or as it's been termed, death by a thousand cuts. I know this happens to me. I'm continually asked, where are you from? I know that's a bit of a stereotype term to explain what a microaggression is, but it's very apt. The assumption being that it's not possible that I'm from Louisiana, Labrador, or even that I'm, I'm not even a Canadian. I have to be from someplace else. I've heard stories of people who have um, either anglicized their names because people can't pronounce them, or people uh, will pick a new name for somebody and start using that because uh, thinking that they're trying to make it easier for this person, 
but your name is such a personal sort of connection to who you are. Somebody um, doesn't even take the time or energy to try and learn to pronounce your name properly. That has, has impacts on people. Um, I've also heard stories of people who are racialized, who are stopped and asked for ID downtown, and white people are not. Uh, harassment is also a form of discrimination and is defined in law as a vexatious course of comments or conduct. So we do hear cases of racial harassment, usually intersected with issues of gender or religious harassment. For the most part, though, these complaints can be dealt with somewhat easily. Faced with a legal proceeding or a human rights complaint, increased public scrutiny, especially nowadays, for the realization that they really did something wrong, most employers move relatively quickly to apologize, get training, or change their policies. So our process, or human rights complaint processes across the country, don't have a good mechanism to try and ensure how committed these organizations are to real change. So really, we only know if there's a problem if the person comes back to us with further complaints. The bigger problem is dealing with complaints involving systemic or institutional discrimination. I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but just for the legal component, just to say that it is extremely hard to prove because it's much more subtle. And a case uh, that I, I'm quoting from, the Canada case, says, Discrimination is not a practice which one would expect to see displayed overtly. It is often subversive and subtle. This is the problem. It relies on an analysis of the data, policies, practices, and decision-making processes, organizational culture of these workplaces. That's extremely hard to prove in law. I've had stories uh, of people who send out resumes, and you hear this. Um, the study at Mun about this. If, uh, if you have a exact same resume as a person with a Newfoundland and Labradorian traditional name versus a name that is a foreign-sounding name, those people, white-sounding names, are going to get interviews before foreign-sounding names. In Canadian human rights law, employers and service providers also have a duty to accommodate to the point of undue hardship. Some examples of accommodations might be modifying dress codes for religious or cultural reasons, flexible scheduling, voluntary shift substitutions or swaps, job reassignments to allow for religious observances, multi-purpose prayer rooms on site, or modifications to other workplace policies and practices. What is not an accommodation is to accommodate the racist thoughts, beliefs, and actions of customers. I did hear, hear a story about restaurant in uh, outside of the Avalon who um, had a temporary foreign worker working there obviously not from Canada and custom a customer said uh, you know to the manager I don't want to be served by that you know and use a, a racial slur so uh, luckily the manager you know was proactive and and said well if you don't want to be served by our worker then I'd suggest that you leave so that was that was good on their part, and they called us to talk about it because they were very upset by this happening. So uh, to accommodate the racism of a customer is not acceptable in today's, well, today's day and age, morally, ethically, or even in law. Um, what is undue hardship is assessed on a case-by-case -case basis, but usually includes consideration of financial costs, how big the organization is, can you move 
around um, and any safety considerations, which is probably not appropriate in these sorts of cases. But my advice, in keep, and in keeping with this discussion on diversity and inclusion, is to remove the underlying barriers in the first place. The racist policies, practices, institution, rather than put the burden on racialized people, seek a formal accommodation at work. Some examples of workplace barriers include in recruitment, selection, and hiring, and I, we know we talked about this a lot before, is that foreign credentials and experience is not recognized. Um, people say that if you don't have Canadian experience, that's not recognized. There is a thought that some coming from might be overqualified because they're looking for entry-level positions while they might have a PhD from their home country. Sometimes um, people will avoid answering certain application or interview questions. There's also a very subjective assessment of what a right fit is. How do you even figure out what that subjective assessment is or how it's measured in an interview? Sometimes you hear stories of people who um, feel their heavy accent may then off people because, again, they're not the right like The employer might say, oh, well, no, my customers won't understand this person. However, the law is clear that as long as you can speak in understandable English, an accent should not matter. And another thing that applies here is the use of informal networking and local references. Uh, the same with at the training and the development stage. So this is kind of taking you from recruitment to uh, termination in the life cycle of an employment of your employment. At work, there's informal networking. Your parents know this person, or you went to the same university or the same high school, or you know these people socially. There's going to be informal networking that newcomers might not be able to access. There's a lack of mentors, and a lot of uh, businesses, um, I think that in the abstract that they think that you know, anti-racism is a good thing, they don't feel that they discriminate, but there's nothing explicit at their workplace to make it a reality. And sometimes you need to do that in order for people at the workplace to understand that this, this is a workplace rule and an expectation that it is meant to be followed. Um, with respect to promotion and advancement in the workplace, again, there's informal networking. There's the use of acting assignment. So you get somebody in there in an acting position, they stay there. And they're more apt to get that job when it goes to a formal competition. Who gets those acting assignments? People that they know, you know through your own informal networks. Um, and the same thing with retention and termination. There are a number of human rights cases that outline how racialized people are, um, I guess, punished is not the right word, but disciplined, I guess, or harshly for the same uh, workplace infractions, uh, infractions, or um, are terminated for less, um, I guess, problematic behavior than, say, others might be. Um, and so that's, that's something that we need to be aware of, that discipline is applied unevenly, and that terminations are not based on objective criteria and are not communicated properly to those that you're terminated. No one likes to terminate somebody. It's not fun. But you have to make sure that you're very clear in the reasons why you're terminating objective criteria. We are happy at the commission to see some companies 
uh, calling us proactively to discuss the need to focus on diversity issues. Just a word about diversity inclusion. I think it's important to talk about. I think that it's um, it might be able you might be able to sell the concept a little bit more with more neutral language like diversity and inclusion. My preference is to call it what it is. It's anti-racism policy, anti-racist work, rather than focus more on diversity and inclusion. However, diversity and inclusion in the workplace does encompass a whole lot of different things, not just anti-racism. So perhaps there's a way to um, you know, include all of these so that you're talking about not just racial issues, but you're talking about um, disability issues, trans issues, sexual orientation, gender, all of these different um, inhibited grounds, I guess for lack of a better word, need to be dealt with and um, accommodated under this rubric of diversity and inclusion. So we offer some employers some, some best practices. Like I said earlier, you want to be able to identify problems and barriers from the outset. I read this one, uh, I saw this one presentation where a woman was talking about how companies in the United States had said, like high tech companies, why are we not getting more women? Know that women are graduating from, you know, computer science and engineering at the same rates as men, but why are they not applying for our company? So they started at their job ads and looked critically at their job ads and said, are these reflective of actual work that we want to do? Um, and so they changed them up and they were uh, encouraged to see more women apply. The same with uh, Google, I think it was, in the United States, they set up um, scholarships and training programs with the historical uh, black colleges and universities in the United States. So that there was a pipeline of quality, uh, highly educated engineers, computer scientists that were ready, were diverse, that were ready to go work for Google. Uh, so they identified the problems and the barriers in the, at the beginning and then tried to remove them. The leadership of the organization is must be committed to change. You have to establish partnerships, whether it's with the Association for New Canadians, Anti-Racism Coalition, Memorial, whatever it is, our office. You have to get support and advice. If you don't know what you're talking about, find out. There's a lot of people here in this province that have real expertise in these areas. There's no excuse for not reaching out. There's no excuse for even admitting that you don't know the answer. Develop these partnerships and you'll get a better result. Um, get support and advice, I already said that. Develop strong policies and procedures internally. Dedicate your resources and respond seriously. If you just put up a thing in your kitchen, this kitchen said we're, you know, committed to anti-racism and nothing happens, there's no resources committed towards it, People are not going to take it seriously. You have to continuously monitor and get training. You have to mentor employees. You have to follow up, feedback, and adjust. You have to think about what happens after there's maybe been an incident. Sometimes people call us proactively or there's problems. Sometimes they call us when there's been a problem. I don't care, call us. That's fine. I'm happy to, to have these conversations. But if you're calling us as a result of an incident, whether it rises to the level of a complaint or something that you realize you need to take seriously, think about what's going to happen. How are these people going to return to the workplace? A restorative piece. How are you going to repair the relationship so that there's, it, you know, it doesn't become toxic? And that is particularly important and something that people don't always consider. 
So the belief that racism doesn't exist in our policies, structures, and institutions in and, in and of itself is a barrier to really addressing these problems. Most people think that racism didn't happen here in Canada or in Newfoundland and Labrador, or that it's solved, um, or that it's only an American problem. But we do know what uh, happens here. Systemic racism is including uh, the policies and practices entrenched in established institutions to result in the exclusion or promotion of, desi uh, promotion of designated groups. This can play out in many, many ways. So let's look at some current statistics. Racialized people and indigenous people have higher unemployment rates. There's a larger wage gap. They have higher child poverty rates. There is a disproportionate rate of incarceration and poverty, especially indigenous people in Canada. There's lower rates of uh, educational attainment. And there's an increased race, uh, rates of racial profiling, either uh, consumer racial profiling by the police or uh, thesis or uh, security at the airports. Um, the Nova Scotia Human Rights Commission has done a lot of work on consumer racial profiling as a result of a human rights case that um, took place a number of years ago about um, an, a black Nova Scotian woman, elderly woman, who was shopping at Sobeys. This is a reported decision. She was followed by the in-store security under the assumption that she was shoplifting. She was not. She was racially profiled at Sobeys. So the uh, CASRA, which is the Canadian Association of Statutory Human Rights Agencies, and uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, our commission is a part of this organization, has come up with an online, free online uh, training resource. And so if you go to CASRA, C-A-S-H-R-A dot C-A, you'll be able to find this um, training uh, program for um, national program for consumer racial profiling. I uh, encourage you to check this out. So we know that systemic racism happens and that the impacts are widespread, especially against racialized people and indigenous people. And we also know that there are changing demographics here in the province. Um, we all think, everybody thinks that's a great thing. We need more people. Government is actively encouraging immigrant recruitment and retention. I know that when we moved here, I didn't see very many brown faces, only at Memorial University. Uh, now, People are everywhere, and that's wonderful. Great restaurants, uh, a vibrant um, music scene, dance scene, and um, people really uh, want to experience, have these experiences. So that's wonderful. However, um, oh, there's also a lot of national students now at MUN that want to stay. However, I've talked to many who can't get jobs, and they're just not sure why. They try and try and try. Uh, and they just can't land full-time employment here in the province. And they want to know why. Not sure why? That is troubling. Now, it may be simply that the job market is tight here. That might be the case. But it also might be um, something else, uh, something more um, systemic, something more insidious. And if that is the case, then that is reflective of systemic racism. The assumption is that you're not from here, you wouldn't be a good, even if you might be the best person for the job. 
At our commission, we don't have a very uh, high number of complaints based on race, ethnicity, national origin, etc. But it, it is increasing just slightly. Um, I think that um, that might be for a couple of reasons. One, people might not know that you can make a complaint against your employer or a landlord or whatever it is at the Human Rights Commission. So we, they might not know that we exist. Um, we're trying to do more in that area. Um, I've also heard that some people don't want to file complaints because they're worried about a backlash against them or other members of the community when they're out working or they're looking for a job. They don't want to be seen as troublemakers. And that is really troubling because here in this country, you are free to raise a complaint, whether internally with your organization, your union, or with the Human Rights Commission, and not suffer a retaliation. Another um, reason that people might not file complaints, as I said earlier, race-based complaints are notoriously hard to talk about, even harder of law. A lot of people will just say, it's a feeling that I had. I can't explain it. The person looked at me differently after I said something, or I showed up, I, I went online to put my resume in, they said, come in for an interview, and as soon as I walked in the store, the look on their face changed, and they said, oh, sorry, we've already filled the position. So it's just a feeling that somebody gets, and that's really hard to prove in, in courts. So there's very little direct evidence. But also, um, there is very little social context is given to these cases. And the unconscious bias of those making the decisions, and who is making the decisions? Um, lawyers, judges, people who may not understand or acknowledge the existence of systemic racism and understand the implications and impact on people. So what is unconscious bias? your family, your personal experiences, your education, your age, where you grew up, your societal and cultural context all have an impact on the decisions you make or your actions without you even realizing it. Our brains are hardwired to make incredibly quick judgments and assessments of people and situations and when we do this, usually based on unconscious or implicit bias. I read a story about uh, a new story about a project which did uh, tested about 700,000 people around the world and found that 70% of them some preference for white people over black people. A situation, a simulation test in the same study that said that they were more likely to shoot an unarmed black person than a white person because they felt that the black person was more threatening. This is so much more timely right now. Uh, but this study was done a few years ago. Another interesting point from this study is that the results didn't necessarily match the people's stated values. For example, a woman whose mother was a scientist associated the sciences with men rather than women. This means that the bias doesn't mean that people will display racist or sexist behavior towards other, others, it's just that it exists without us even realizing it. Now, there is some debate about whether you can Learn to counteract your own bias, your unconscious bias, whether this unconscious bias training even works. That's kind of the rage right now. I don't know what the answer to that is, but as far as I'm concerned, training and education doesn't harm us. Now, um, the only issue that I have seen is that by calling it unconscious, you're really taking the, um, I don't know what the word is, but you're really taking kind of the onus off us to do hard work. Combat 
by saying, well, I didn't know. I'm not doing it purposely. Um, so I think we need to sometimes think about how we classify these things, how we define these terms, as um, sometimes labeling things as unconsciously done make it easier to kind of stomach. Ultimately, this issue is not going away. People are very interested right now. They want to know what they can do, how we can move forward. I went to the Black Lives Matters rally a few uh, weeks ago. It was great. There was lots of people there, great energy, positive, people wanting to do something. Uh, you and us as community organizers and interested in citizens need to figure out how to get government to make this a priority and to ensure a long-term commitment. Government must listen to you and must act. So what can we do about it? I read a recent book by Professor Ibram Kendi called How to Be an Anti-Racist. It's like the number one bestseller on the New York Times list right now because I guess with COVID and everything, people are ordering all, and all the other stuff that's going on about racism uh, in North America, people are ordering a lot of these books. So they're trying to learn more about some of these issues. So his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, is, is really excellent. And he says that it's not enough to say you're not a racist, but rather you must be explicitly anti-racist. It is a verb. It means awareness and also action. You have to do something about it. We all must educate ourselves, understand the roles or the privilege that we have, express anti-racist ideas, that is that no one race is better than the other, and advocate for change. You need to, you know, even the stuff that I talked about earlier, microaggressions, unconscious bias, or even the phrase systemic racism. He challenges these and says they should just be avoided because they obscure the offense. Instead, instead, you need to call it out as simply racist policies, practices, institutions. And he also says that calling somebody racist basically shuts down any sort of conversation. It's not as simple as that. So lastly, he argues in his book that you need to recognize that anti-racism means standing by, getting ready to fight racism's other intersections, stories with other bigotries, and that's from gender, gender identity, poverty. But ultimately, it is about action and being anti-racist. So to end quickly, I'm going to... Um, I read a, an editorial piece in the Ottawa Citizen by a, a person named Josh DeJango. I think that's his, that's how I pronounce the last name. Anyway, and I just thought I'd quote that because I thought it was really interesting about what we could all do. He says, victims of injustice don't need your wokeness. Need allies focus on making tangible differences. Those who recognize and there is a crime, restitution must include loss for the offender. Those who carry the burden on their hearts and join with us in our pain. Those who are marked by true compassion that spurs to action. Read a book, volunteer, fund a scholarship, pray. Get your past mistake. Get to understanding and having a compassionate heart. Acknowledge your privileges. Do something tangible. Allow us the opportunity to have these uncomfortable conversations with you. Continue to fight when the media moves on and you know it's going to, and it's no longer the fashionable thing. 
Invest in businesses owned by marginalized communities. Teach your children the beauty of diversity. Welcome immigrants and refugees into communities. Commit to their success. Make xenophobic and racist language unacceptable in your home and workplace. Challenge your political and community leaders. Make changes. They don't do it yourself. Elevate the voices of the oppressed and listen to them. To those of you who will walk away, know that we see right through you. Your words ring hollow to us and you have little credibility. Your fight is solely for the spotlight and for the praise of others just like you. We don't need that. We need you. To the few who will decide to sacrifice the privilege of walking away and choose to bind themselves to those who don't have the choice, welcome to the fight. We're glad you're sticking around. I thought that was a really great summary of just what we, as um, ordinary citizens of this community, all commit to do to make things better. So with that, I'll please get in touch with me at the Human Rights Commission. General email address at our office is humanrights.gov.nl.ca. You can speak to me or to our intake officer, Elisa, about any of these questions. And I hope to continue this discussion in the future, and I hope that you enjoy this day of learning. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast, an excerpt of ANC's Diversity Summit 2020, a virtual event held on June 25th. To find out more, check out ANC's YouTube channel for the full recording of the event.